Hey, welcome to Rock Rit. It's been a while. Hope you have been well. Fast Freddie Patterson is hands down one of the most colorful personalities to inhabit the LA pre-punk and punk scenes. In 1975, he started the legendary Backdoor Man fanzine with a bunch of his hardcore rock and roller pals from the South Bay area of LA, all because Cream Magazine was starting to get weak. Backdoor Man had a good five-ish year run during which it published 15 issues and covered the best rock of the time. Stooges, Blue Oyster Cult, Patti Smith, Mott the Hoople, Thin Lizzy, as well as local South Bay stuff, and later punk bands like X, The Weirdos, The Last. Folks in the know prize the mag highly for its great taste and classic fanzine writing style. And you know that passionate, straight-talking, unpretentious quality you find in the best 70s rock scenes? That was developed and perfected in the pages of Backdoor Man. Back issues go for a lot these days, and anthology collecting all of them seems entirely appropriate. Freddie also wrote for other mags like Slash, New York Rocker, and Rock Scene. He was a serious record collector and DJ at any chance he got, he still does. And a neat fact, it was Freddie who turned his good pal Jeffrey Lee Pierce of Gun Club onto Obscure Blues, so we have Fred to thank for some of the greatness of those early Gun Club records. He also fronted his own band, Fast Freddie and The Precisions, who played a very original, lively, swingy, R&B-ish music that was totally at odds with everything else going on at the time, not just in LA, but really anywhere. Manifesto Records recently released a double CD of their 80s output, including their Limbo LP and a whole second disc of rare material. The stuff is hip and challenging and well worth your time. That's enough out of me. Let's hear from the man himself. Please enjoy this chat with Fast Freddie Patterson on Rock Rit. Fred, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I like being remembered. <laughs> I'm going to steal my opening questions from Art Fine. Some listeners may not know who Art Fine is. That may may not be familiar, but Art Fine is was an L.A. music scene fixture since the 70s. He hosted a popular cult cable access show called Art Fine's Poker Party. I know you've been on that show. Mm -hmm. And as you know, he would always ask his guests two questions. What was the first rock and roll record you bought? And what was the first rock and roll show you saw? So what was the first rock and roll record you bought, Fred? Well, I bought three records in the same day. The first records I bought was my own money. And that would be Surrealistic Pillow by Jefferson Airplane. And I bought the uh, first two Doors singles, Break On Through and Light My Fire. And I bought them at Wallach's Music City in North Torrance. And that was... 1967. Some of them still hold up. And so what was the first rock and roll show you saw? The first rock and roll show I went to was 1969, might be, maybe 69. I was a freshman in high school. Yeah, so it had to be 1969. And it was Creedence Clearwater, The Grassroots, and Sir Douglas Quintet at the Long Beach Arena. That would be a killer first show. Did, did a parent take show. you or you got to go with pals? I went on a date, probably one of the first dates I ever had in my life. This girl named uh, Marion. We went because a friend of mine had won tickets to a concert. And he wanted me and Marion, who I liked at the time, to <clears throat> go with him. And the concert, I can't remember what the concert he won the tickets for, but it was something horrible. Some, just somebody really kind of pedestrian that you know popular you know but it was i go uh you know almost anything but that and then he got the tickets for the credence show and i thought well that's a little bit better by 69 i wasn't into much really pop music anymore i was kind of moving away from it because i had discovered captain beefheart and frank zappa and and you know weird hippie music like that and and i just discovered free jazz and and blues, I was listening to Howlin' Wolf records and things. 
And so, okay, we'll go see Creedence. You know, I liked Creedence. I had the first two records when they came out. And I liked the grassroots. I liked uh, some of the early recordings are quite good. And, you know, Sir Doug's quintet, how can you not like that? So that was fun. Sir Doug played Mendocino twice. That was their big hit. They played it in the middle of the set, and then they played it again at the end. And Grassroots did a song that I really liked called Feelings. I don't know if you're familiar with that song. No, no. But it's kind of a heavy song. It wasn't a hit for them, but it was played in L.A. somewhat. It was kind of a minor hit in L.A. for them. And it's got this heavy fuzz tone guitar. It's really a boss song. Huh. Um, and for the Grassroots, you know, this is probably their big hit at the time is Midnight Confessions. It was before they got too pop. They're still kind of a, a folk rock band, you know, kind of a rock band. Mm. And so they did Feelings, and I thought that was great. Feelings. And Credence, the thing that the other two bands sounded like they were playing live, you know, because you could tell like the grassroots didn't have the horns with them. And um, Sir Doug was a little raggedy, you know, everything didn't. But when Credence played, they seemed to play almost exactly note for note like the record. Mm. I wasn't sure if I liked that or not. I mean, especially, you know, you listen to the long version of Susie Q that they did or uh, what's that other long song? I can't remember, but it seemed like all the guitar solos were the exact same as the record. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure if I liked that or not. I was kind of hoping it'd be a little bit more like um, freeform or jazzy or something, you know, just do a different solo. Come on, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about getting to Beefheart and free jazz and things yeah. like that. I, I think something that's like sounds way too practiced live is, is going to rub you funny, right? Yeah, you know, we used to have in my high school, we used to have monthly dances and, you know, the local bands would play. And this one local band, oh, this is going to be a funny story. One local band used to play, I can't remember what they were called right now, but the drummer was this fellow named Marcus Dubay. And he was a great drummer for a guy who he was, he must have been a senior, junior or senior that year, you know, when I first saw him, because he was in my older brother's class. And he was a great drummer. And they would do, of course, Inagata Vita was a big hit, you mm -hmm. know, and everybody had to do that. All the bands had to play Inagata Vita with a drum solo. And so Marcus Trubay, when he came to do the drum solo, he didn't do it like the record. He did like a totally his drum solo. And I thought that was really cool. And I remember a friend of mine who was a drummer, not nearly as good as Marcus Dubay. He said, man, I could do that drum solo note for note. I go, yeah, but I'd rather hear his solo, not the record solo, mm -hmm. you know? And anyway, later, Marcus Dubay, you know, after high school, I didn't hear from him a long time. I didn't really know the fellow. I, I knew him and I liked him. Uh, but, you know, I'd see him in the hall and say, hey, man, how's it going? And that, that's it. You know, it's not like we ever had lunch together or anything. After high school, uh, you know, an MTV became popular. This is long after high school. I'm watching it one day and this horrible song comes on, Eye of the Tiger. You know that song? Yeah, absolutely. The drummer uh, in the video is Marcus Bay. What? <laughs> yes. Not kidding. I don't know if he's on the record. I know he toured with the band, but I don't know if he played on the record or not. But he's in the video, and for all intents and purposes, in this day and age, that's all that counts. <laughs> it's wild. You know, I don't know enough, and I don't care enough to 
find out if he was actually on the record. But he was in the video. And I saw him. I go, that's Marcus Dubay. Good for him. He's making money playing drums, as he should. He's a great drummer. I just wish he was in a better band. But, you know. You obviously aged well, because this is years later. And you yeah, can still oh, yeah. recognize the guy, right? Oh, yeah. So you grew up in South Bay. Yeah, in Torrance. In the South Bay area of Los Angeles? Yes, Torrance. And was it in Torrance, was it easy to come across free jazz and stooges and, and velvets and, and good kind of out there music? Well, the it, a couple of things happened to me. One is I became, I don't know how you can put this. You know, in, in high school, I was kind of a popular guy because I hung out with all kinds of, all the different groups I hung out with. But in the summertime, I didn't hang out with anybody. You know, so during the summer, I, I was kind of by myself a lot. And I um, just explored music. And music was my conduit to, you know, life, I guess, or, or sanity. And so I just explored music. I read music magazines. I read Rolling Stone magazine because it still cared about music then. And it had a, um, a cover story on Captain Beefheart. This is in 69 and the writing about Trap Mask Replica. I thought, wow, this is really great. This is, it sounds really interesting, the way they describe it and the, the interview and everything sounded really in, in, enticing. And so I went out and bought the record and I thought, this is amazing. It was so different than anything I've ever heard in my life. And reading about Beefheart, they say his voice sounds like Howlin' Wolf, so I had to go buy Howlin' Wolf records. And at the time, they had just issued this two-record set you know, Chester Burnett, AKA Howlin' Wolf or something like that. So two records set, best of, it had just come out. So I bought that and it was great. And another thing is, you know, mono records were being phased out quite a bit. So you can buy them really cheap in, in cut out bins. So there was a couple of record, not record stores, but what do you call them? Uh, like Kmart, what do you call that kind of store? Yeah, uh... like a variety store, I guess. But there's several of these stores similar to Kmart, but I don't think they had Kmarts in Southern California then. But I remember distinctly, one of them was called Whitefront. And then there was another one. Whitefront was in Torrance, kind of West Torrance. I could ride my bike there. And another one was in Gardena. And I can't remember the name of that one. I don't think it was Whitefront. So it might have been another Whitefront because there were several. And they had cut out records for two bucks, cut out mono copies, you know, for two bucks. And they had all those impulse albums. They had the beautiful covers, John Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders, those mm -hmm. kind of things. And, you know, in the Beefheart interview, they said Captain Beefheart plays his soprano sax, like free jazz guys, like Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders. So I had to buy those records to find out what that was all about. And I had to buy John Lee Hooker records. And, you know, so I was just, really into it. Plus I was into Frank Zappa and he's into Johnny Guitar Watson and doo-wop and stuff. So I was buying that stuff. And those stores, those cutout bins were amazing. One day in, I think 1973, it had to be 73 because I was hanging out with my friend Tom at the time. I'd met him around 1973. And Tom, Tom Gardner, who was uh, later with me in Backdoor Man magazine, so we're hanging out at a white front, the one in West Torrance. And we were at the cutout booth and they had the first Stooges album 
for, I kid you not, 79 cents each. You know, they had little holes wow. in them because they were cut out. And there were like four or five of them, maybe six. And Tom and I bought all of them and just gave them <laughs> to our friends. Yeah, and there were and there were um, used record stores. There was a couple of hippie used record stores not far from where I lived. And I remember getting MC5 records there and, and stuff like that. There was um, a store in Gardena that I went to once. Well, I went to I went to it a couple of times, and I was there once. And they had in the, it was the kind of store they made they they made their money with lowriders. They they would make custom eight track tapes. Lowriders would come in with a stack of forty fives and say. I want, you know, Angel Baby and all these songs on this A-track. And they they would do that. I was there once going through the albums and they had the second and third Chocolate Watch Band album. I already had the first. They had the third, fourth, and fifth 13th Floor Elevators records. I already had the first. And they had that live at Amundsen Theater Yardbirds album. I think there was another record maybe the 50 foot hose or something. I can't remember. But I just remember thinking, I got to get these records. And I don't know why I just didn't buy one or two, you know, when I when I was there, the ones that I could afford. But I saved up a bunch of money and went back. And for some reason, those records were still there and I bought them all. So yeah, you know, I had access to cool music. But only because I was interested in finding stuff that was outside the top 40. Sometimes you just have to go looking for things. And back then, it wasn't very easy. It's not like you have YouTube today. You can just dial it up and there's, you know, I want to be your dog. It sounds like magazines, like that Rolling Stone article was kind of a gateway into other things. You see, oh, Beefheart, cool. And yeah, exactly. you see references to Free Jazz, Coltrane, and Fro Sanders. Yeah. So, so you have to buy and, those as well, too. So, Yeah. And there was another thing that was a big influence, and that was this... Uh, they called it an underground radio station out of Pasadena, California, called KPPC. Hmm. And during the day, you couldn't always get it very well, but at night you can get it pretty well. And it would play, it would play Captain Beefheart, it would play Frank Zappa, it would play, it would play jazz too, and and Ravi Shankar and and things like that. And I just thought, this is great stuff. How come they don't play this on you know KHJ, the top forty station? Of course, now you. Know, course they're not going to play that for but you know they played a lot of stuff they play they would play a whole album signed it's funny because the day i brought home the first mc5 album i played it all the way through then i turned it on kppc and they were playing it so oh, wow. that was kind of wild yeah and you mentioned backdoor man magazine fred can you talk about how that started and how like why did you start backdoor man in the first place in 1973 after the tail end of 72 I had met these people who were in a band. One of them was Don Waller. And Don and his, he was in a band called, at the time the band was called uh, Sugar Boy. And I had seen them a couple of times. They played, I had already graduated from high school. I was going to college and they played the college. I thought these guys are kind of cool. They're not doing the top 40 stuff. They're doing these weird things. They were doing an Eddie Cochran song and they were doing, um, a couple of interesting things and writing their own songs that were kind of interesting. I thought this was cool. And then I saw them again. There was a popular local group called Clap that I saw a few times. And my brother, my little brother and his friends wanted to go see Clap. They're playing somewhere at a, at a roller rink downtown Torrance. They want to go. They needed a ride. 
I go, well, I, they show, they're showing me the flyer. They go, oh, opening for the show with Sugar Boy. So I said, oh, I'd like to see Sugar Boy again. They were cool. So I, so I drove them down and Sugar Boy was there. And I was there in front of the stage the whole time going, play the Eddie Cochran song, play the Eddie Cochran song. And so later I met them and Don Waller says, yeah, you're the guy who wants to hear the Eddie Cochran song. I go, yeah. And so one night I'm at, uh, one day I went over to meet with Paul, the guitarist for Sugar Boy in a place in Hermosa Beach. And his roommate was Don Waller. And Paul and I were talking for a while and Don comes in and he and I start talking. Then Paul has to go to work. He had a, I think he worked in a gas station or a garage or something over in Gardena. So he had to leave. I'm there talking to Don and we talked until, God, I think the sun came up or something. We were there for a long time chatting about music and things. And he had all his records out. He goes, you ever heard the move? I go, no. And he played Do Ya or Hello Susie or something. I go, wow. And he played all these rock records. And I had already kind of felt that I was beyond rock music by that time, for the most part, because I wanted to hear weird stuff. And he was playing all these records that I'd never heard before. He played the Stooges for me. It was the first time I heard the, was it the first time I heard the Stooges? I'd, I'd heard of the Stooges, but I hadn't heard the records. And mm -hmm. he had uh, the first two albums. I don't think the third one was out yet. And so he's playing these records for me. I go, this stuff's kind of cool. It's very different than, than Cream or Almond Brothers or, you know, that kind of stuff. It was really popular at the time. You know, I thought, oh, this stuff's really good. And so we got to be really good friends. And so it was the guys in this band and a bunch of other people. Tom Gardner became one of our friends hanging out with us and several other people. And around that time, I met Greg Turner. I met him at a record store in the Valley somewhere. Tom and I were out there buying records. We, Tom and I used to go on these record cruises where we would go to, uh, you know, to San Fernando Valley. We had regular runs, San Fernando Valley, Santa Monica, Hollywood, uh, Long Beach, and uh, sometimes Orange County, where we'd buy records. And we were up in San, uh, San Fernando Valley somewhere. And this guy approaches the counter and says, do you have anything by the 13th floor elevators? And, you know, nobody who knew who they were at the time. I go, you're into the elevators? He goes, yeah. He turns around to me, he goes, yeah. You into them? Oh, yeah, man. So we got to be really good friends. I'm still friends with Greg Turner. And, you know, he was in the Angry Samoans and stuff. That's and, right. That's right. And he uh, was a writer for Backdoor Man. We, after a while, we asked him to write for us because he was smart and interesting. So, you know, we just kind of gathered forces like that, you know. Dee Dee Faye was Don Waller's girlfriend at the time, and she was really smart. Her sister was Dee Dee Faye, and she was a bass player in a band. So everybody was just into music a lot, all the people we hung out with. As you're starting Backdoor Manfred, did you guys have ambitions for it? Like, had you seen other fanzines around to say like, oh, there's a model for this? Well, I'd seen Who Put the Bomp, which okay. at the time was just dealing with old records. Mm -hmm. They were just doing 60s records, mostly British records. I mean, they're big. I remember one of the, the big stories was Metal Mike had a big article, the DC-5 versus the MC-5. <laughs> you know, so they were doing those kind of articles. And, um, and then I, so I, I was aware of Trouser Press, but they also were also mostly British music from the 60s mm -hmm. they were interested in. They weren't, I don't believe they were doing much contemporary music. And Trouser Press was mostly, the, the big concern was British music, I think. But I hadn't seen 
a fanzine that either dealt with local stuff or contemporary stuff, really. And so I thought it was kind of unique at the time. I thought, you know, one day I'm, I'm sitting around with my friends. I go, maybe we should just start our own magazine. We're reading Cream and Cream's, you know, suddenly they're writing about Elton John or something. You know, I go, well, this isn't rock and roll, really. Where's, where's the articles on Blue Oyster Cult, you know? So, you know, we just decided I had some money saved up. I can't remember where I got it from. The next thing you know, we're just we're writing articles. Let's do it. It's going to be called Backdoor Man. I designed the first cover after the first one came out. I don't know. Did you ever see the first cover? I think, is that the hand-drawn one, Freddie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, beautiful. it's lovely. It's what? It's lovely. I've just seen a scan <laughs> of it, but it looks yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, it's funny, but after it came out, all the writers turned to me because we can't do it. You can't do it like this. This is too, you know, they thought it was unprofessional. And so then, you know, it's, it started um, the cover wars. <laughs> Not really wars, but, you know, just the other guys came in and I allowed them, I guess I allowed them to exert a little bit more pressure or not pressure, but more control, which was actually a good thing because they were all smart, probably smarter than me. And they came up with good ideas. So I think it worked out for the most part. But yeah, you know, I look at it now and I, I think at that first one, eh, it's kind of quaint. <laughs> you know? I, I, I've never read it. I, I just have a few issues of Backdoor Man that I love and cherish. I honestly just can't afford the back issues these days, but I would kill to see that first issue. I'm sure it's amazing. Yeah, I understand they go for a little bit of money. Tom and I are actually, we were talking earlier this year about putting out a bound thing. I don't know what happened to that. Now everybody's lives are up in up in the air. COVID and, and Tom's going through some personal things. I just moved. I don't know. And Didi moved. You know, Don's dead. Didi, mm. the four of us, Didi Faye, Don Waller, and Tom Gardner and I were the main four. We called ourselves the hardcore four involved with Backdoor Man. And Didi lives in Portugal now. Oh, wow. Don's dead. Tom's going through personal things. And, you know, I'm upstate in New York somewhere. And so I don't know if this is going to happen now. So I'm thinking what maybe I'll just do is make a blog and publish it all, you know, for free on the, on the internet. Just scan each page and every once in a while, okay, here's another page. Here's another page. You would make a lot of people happy, I tell you. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's all I'm interested in, really. I'm interested in people seeing it. There's also the one thing that's always stopped me, though, is because some of our things were maybe construed as racist or anti-Semitic. And, you know, we're not those people. You know, we're not those people. And we really weren't then either. I mean, we were just, we were saying horrific stuff like that, mostly just to get a rise out of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I used to wear swastika belt buckles and things just because I wanted to get a rise out of people. I mean, I'm not a Nazi. I would never be a Nazi. You know, I, I don't hate anybody for being who they are. I mean, I hate people for what they've become. You know, if somebody's a, a, a dirtbag, I'm going to hate you. You know, somebody's mm -hmm. a creep. Somebody's uh, lies to me or steals from me or or something like that, you know, but just for being who you are, I mean, that, there's no reason to hate anybody. And I felt like that then too, but, you know, just trying to get some, I guess trying to raise a little excitement, <laughs> you know, and it very often did that, <laughs> you know, I mean, looking back, it wasn't a bright thing to do. So that's one of the reasons that I, I didn't want it to come out for a long time. 
you were talking about the first issue not being, you know, like the greatest thing in the world, but clearly like you guys persevered and, and you caught on with an audience. Did you have a sense of who was reading Backdoor Man after you had a few issues out? Uh, after a few issues, yeah. You know, we took it to record stores to sell and, you know, because Tom and I had been going to all these record stores all these years, they knew us. They go, oh yeah, we'll sell. They, you know, everybody would sell it on consignment. We probably never went and got our money for it. I think Tower Records which sold it. We knew those guys. And they sold it. And that's how we got around in Hollywood, really, because Tower Records sold it. And, you know, Kim Fowley would read it. And um, Greg Shaw saw it there. And he was a big help. Uh, a fellow, I don't know if you know this person named Ben Edmonds, but I can't leave him out of, out of the story. Well, he was a cream writer for a long time. And then he wrote for a record world, which was at the time a music industry magazine, like much like Billboard, but it was it didn't stick around as long as Billboard. And so he wrote about us in Record World, and that got us a lot of notoriety. And Ben Edmonds was the guy who helped Iggy put together that um, that post rock power album. What's that called? The one that Bomp put out? Uh, Kill City or Kill City? Yeah, yeah. He was involved with that. I don't remember if he funded it or produced it or executive produced it or something, but he had a heavy hand in putting that together. Oh wow! He's a he's a Detroit cat, you know. He he wrote for Cream when Cream was still in Detroit, so he knew oh, Iggy yeah. from those days. And speaking of Detroit, you had Lester Bangs contribute to the issue to one of your yeah. issues as well, too, which is that's that's a huge coup, right? That was great. That was fantastic. The, um, because he was our hero, you know. We read all of his stuff. You know, I think Tom Gardner had some of his stuff memorized. Waller had the piece Carburetor Dung, which was one of his early pieces. He had that practically memorized. When I was in New York, I came to New York City in 77. And that's when I met him. You know who Miriam Lina is, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of, uh, of Kicks. And of Kicks, Morton. of course. So she was one of our fans. She got, how did she hear about us? She must have heard about us when Greg Shaw wrote about us in Bomp. She sent away for a copy. And then she was still living in Cleveland at the time. And she would write to us. She would send us the Perubu singles, you know, as they were coming out. And those and those Perubu singles were like godhead to us. It made us think there's somebody else out there who cares about real rock music and not just, you know, top 40 stuff or something. Mm-hmm. People making real original music. You know, and that's what we cared about. And so we loved those Perubu singles. And Mary would write to us. And then she moved to New York and she kept bugging me to come out. So finally, in the spring of 77, I went out to hang out with her. She was in the cramps at the time. So I saw the cramps and hung out with Lux and Ivy and those folks. And I, I met Lester Bangs then. Miriam knew Lester. We hung out. We got, um, I came back to New York in the fall that year just for like a weekend, like four days, maybe. And one night I got drunk with Lester. But Lester, you know, when I first met him, he says, uh, I asked him if he'd write for us. He goes, sure. And the next thing you know, he gives me this great big stack of papers. He gave me that article, The Backdoor Men and Women in Bondage. And then he gave me another one, which was too long to print. It was way too long to print. But I think it ended up in one of those uh, Lester Bangs readers. But yeah, we liked Lester. He was a good guy. And we knew Meltzer. Richard Meltzer moved to L.A. after a while. Yeah. I wanted him to write for us, but he wouldn't write. He wouldn't write for free. Lester wrote for free. And uh, Meltzer says, I'm a professional. I've got to get money. And so we asked, well, how much do you want? 
it was 30 bucks or something like that, like 20 bucks, 30 bucks, I can't remember. And so we got a bunch of money together and gave it to him and he wrote a piece for us. That's how we got that piece. <laughs> That's amazing. Did you run into Meltzer very much, like being in L.A. at the time? Oh, yeah. You know, after he moved there, well, he was in the angry, not the angry Simone, but the other bag, Vom. Right. You know, with Greg Turner. So I saw them several times. Uh, but yeah, we would see Meltzer out at clubs and hanging out. and stuff. He was funny. We had a lot of mutual friends. He's a really funny guy. I like Meltzer. He'd been jaded for a few years in the 70s. I think punk kind of rejuvenated his interest in rock and roll. For a Yeah, I think bit. so, too. Did punk have that effect on you guys as well? Fred, you well, talked yeah. about writing about like Loister Cult and, and kind of like hard rock acts from the 70s, but you're also coming in contact with like these early Perubu records and things. Well, we were interested in punk because it, it seemed to, you know, the best elements. And, you know, it's funny because punk rock became this sort of uh, Ramones influenced music. I don't know how else to put it because. Before the Ramones was around, there are a lot of bands that you could have considered punk rock that didn't really sound like the Ramones. And by sounding like the Ramones, I mean, you know, one or two chords really fast, mm -hmm. you know, short songs. But there were other bands that were doing punk type music because, you know, they were loud, they, were, they had tough lyrics, um, and they're totally uncommercial. You're just doing their own thing without a care to ever getting played on, you know, big FM radio station or something, you know, mm. they just did their thing and hoped somebody would like it. And there was a handful of bands like that before the Ramones in LA. Not a lot. A lot of the, a lot of the bands were like boogie bands or heavy metal bands, you know, bands or sub sub deep purple bands. But occasionally there would be bands. There's one of my favorites was a band called the Berlin Brats. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And they were really good. They were probably, you know, well, obviously modeled after the New York Dolls. Yeah. But they were still good at it. You know, they're, you know, just this kind of mutant Rolling Stones band. Yes, <laughs> you know? totally. So I like them. There are a couple other bands. Uh, Didi was in a band called, um, not Didi, Danielle, her sister Danielle was in a band called Atomic Kid that later became The Zippers. And they were really kind of an interesting band. They had, before they became the Zippers, they had a, a keyboard player who was kind of wild. And they were like a cross between, I don't know, they're more like a Roxy music type punk band. Mm. You know what I mean? Because they had the keyboard guy. Yeah. But it was, um, I mean, they were influenced by David Bowie quite a bit and Roxy music. But they were good. They were pretty good. Then they mutated. I guess the, the keyboard player left and they became the Zippers. And they made a few records. They were a really good band, more of a power pop band by then. But uh, where were we? You're talking about some of these like kind of proto-punk bands, bands that were kind of punk in attitude in a way. And then the Ramones came and sound-wise changed well, everything. Well, the like, Ramones... Without the Ramones, there would be no Zeros and Adolescents and all these other... Well, I think the germs. Zeros... Um, we're more influenced by the Heartbreakers, I think. Mm -hmm. The New York Dolls and the Heartbreakers and the Seeds. And, and then, of course, the Ramones as well. But some of those bands, some of these, some of these bands, I think, may have happened anyway. Like, I think the Zeros would have been a band anyway without mm -hmm. the Ramones. But they were, they were getting influences from you know, the Heartbreakers uh, and the New York Dolls, definitely. 
the Rolling Stones and 60s punk bands like the Seeds, you know, and, and the Music Machine. The Ramones were good in that they really brought out people. Uh, it influenced a lot of people to play music, much like the Beatles did in the 60s. But, um, you know, the idea of in order for it to be punk, it's got to be three chords and really fast and really short. You know, that kind of miffed me because, you know, they have bands like the Screamers who don't really subscribe to that. They didn't even yeah. have guitars, you know? Yeah. And they were a great band. Yeah, you it's know, interesting. We, Keyboards were pretty prominent in, I'm just thinking of other LA Hollywood bands at the time. Um, so the Screamers, there would be... Uh, with the Dickies uh, Catholic discipline and like the Dickies, like yeah. they all sound very different. Yeah. And Dickies are obviously very pop, but they all are like, they're not afraid to bring in sparks and, and other strange kind of arty influences as well right. and throw them into the mix. They had oh, original yeah. kind of challenging sounds that were totally unique. Yeah. Uh, X, I think might've happened even without the Ramones. I think the Ramones probably helped them along a little bit, you know, yeah. influence wise. Well, they had the doors and kind of rockabilly and, and these other yeah. things to lean on a bit. Yeah. Well, I had seen Billy Zoom in his rockabilly bands, you know, like about a year or two before that. But yeah, the, the Ramones were great. I don't know. I don't know if you know the, um, my saying that gets quoted over and over. Oh, now I can't even remember my own quote. Oh, I can't remember. I think it's if, uh, if you don't like the Ramones, you're an asshole or something. <laughs> I can't remember. We're going to have to I, look it up. And you know, I, it was used, there was a sheet, Sire Records, I didn't realize this until much later, Sire Records put out a, a press release of quotes about the Ramones and it had my quote in it. <laughs> I don't really get people not getting the Ramones. It's... Yeah, the Ramones were great. I especially liked the, the first few albums. But you know, you take a band like uh, The Clash or The Jam or even X, and they kind of moved on a little bit from their first album. Mm -hmm. And the Ramones, you know, when they tried to move on a little bit, it didn't really work as well, I don't think. No, no. Those first three, four, and then like odd albums, like Subterranean Jungle is good. And then and like some of the 90s stuff is quite charming and nice. Yeah, they were always um, good live. I saw them once in the 90s and they were really good. You know, it was Johnny and Joey and I can't remember who else. Maybe we could talk about your time writing for Slash Magazine. Did you know Claude Bessie, the editor, before you became a contributor for that? Oh, yeah, I knew him pretty well. Backdoor Man started in 1975 before the, the punk rock revolution. Mm -hmm. And in fact, on our first issue, I had an, uh, an editorial piece where I basically called for punk rock to happen. I called for a more simple thing in music, loud, fast, you know, hard. And... And then punk rock happened soon after that. We had Ted Nugent on the cover and, and stuff like that. We were still kind of a, had some heavy metal influences, you know, when punk rock was rearing its head. And when Slash started, uh, people thought of us as rivals. And I always thought of Slash as more of a, a fashion magazine. For instance, they had the Screamers on the cover of their magazine because they looked cool more than anything. They did an interview mm -hmm. with them and everything. They hadn't played a single note in town. Nobody knew what they sounded like, you know? So I always thought of Slash as more of a fashion magazine than a music magazine. But some of the music writers are really good. And Claude Bessie was really good. And I liked him a lot. He and I got along mostly because both of us, our music tastes went beyond 
you know, the five or six punk records that were available at the time. That's right. I mean, you you were also into roots and soul and reggae music and, and yeah, exactly. as well loved these things himself. Exactly. Because Collard was very into reggae music and jazz, some jazz stuff too, which I was into. And so we would talk about different things. And he was a, he was an interesting guy, you know, a French, a French guy. And we got along and people used to think that you know, when we were in the same room, they thought they were afraid we were going to fight or something, but we never fought. We, not once. I don't think I ever called him a single name. I certainly hope I did. <laughs> Why would beyond, they think beyond, that you guys beyond, would... um, beyond frog, you know? <laughs> you know, I don't think I called him anything worse than a frog. Why would they think that you two would scrap? Just because we we're different magazines and I thought we were like these heavy rivals, you know? Gotcha. You know, and we're both kind of personalities on the scene. But I liked Claude, and I was very saddened when he passed away. But no, how I how did I get to write for uh, Slash? I got to write just for Slash because of uh, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, actually. Hmm. He and I were pretty good friends. Just for listeners who don't know, this is Jeffrey Lee Pierce who founded The Gun Club um, yeah, and did solo work as well, too. Yeah, he was a writer for Slash at the time. Mm-hmm. I met him through this woman named Anna Statman. I don't know if you know her, but she mm-hmm. worked for Slash Records when Slash Records started out later on. And she, who was her big signing? She had a couple of good big signings, but I can't remember. But she was a really sweet woman. I really like her. And she, she, she was the bass player for um, Jeffrey's first band called The Red Lights. Okay. And I met her and she goes, oh, you, you should meet my friend Jeffrey. I, I mentioned to her that I had this a Bob Marley record on Trojan. You know, I had one of his Trojan singles, which is you know earlier than the Island stuff that was coming out at the time. And she said, "Oh, you should meet my friend Jeffrey, who's you know he likes reggae music." I go, "Okay." And so she introduced me on some corner in Hollywood somewhere, and we just got to be really good friends talking about music and stuff. And. I moved to Hollywood in 78, might have been the end of like November of 78. I was there for about a year. And I think it was around that time that I wrote for Slash or maybe just before. I can't remember exactly. But Jeffrey would come over all the time and we'd hang out. You know, he, he had been writing under various names for Slash. Ranking Jeffrey Lee, I think, was one of his big ones. And he wrote about reggae and some of the punk bands. and and. Jeffrey says, why don't you write for Slash? And I said, well, I don't know if I just want to write reviews. I go, I told him, you know, I wouldn't mind doing a little column for them. And so he says, well, let me see what they say. So he calls me because, yeah, they want you to do a column. Just do a column on the scene or, you know, anything that's on your mind. They said, it's fine. I go, okay. And so I started writing a column. Though I can't remember what it was called. I must have done like three or four of them before Slash called it quits. Uh, so I was there at the end of Slash Magazine. But in one of the columns, I mentioned how after gigs at the Starwood, everyone would hang out at the Okie Dog, the burger place down the street. Mm-hmm. And I'd mention, you know, the guys from the Germs would be there, the guys, you know, Billy Zoom would drop by or, or you know, that kind of thing. And the next thing you know, all these punks were hanging out at Okie Dog after hours from like two in the morning till like almost four. It'd be nothing but punks there just hanging out, getting drunk and eating okie dog. And I don't know if you know what an okie dog is, but it's really, let me put it like this. When I stopped drinking, I stopped going to okie dog. It was, you know, it was just basically a burger stand. 
And yeah. the okie dog is like tortillas, chopped up hamburger and hot dogs and chili with mustard and, and I think uh, ketchup in it. And that's an okie dog. And it was run by these crazy Japanese folks that the place was actually called Danny's Dogs. Huh. But on the sign, it said okie dog, you know, <laughs> okie dog, it's a great big sign says Danny's Dogs, okie dog, hot dog, hamburgers, whatever. But we called it the okie dog. I, was, I think I might have even been the first one to call it the okie dog. I called it okie dog in the column. And after that, everybody called it okie dog. And everybody went there after shows, you know, the bars closed at two. Okie dog was open 24 hours. So you can go there and get something to eat. Though, you know, the food wasn't fabulous. The, the French fries were these huge things that, that you had to eat them when they're hot. Because once they cooled off, it was like eating candles but it was fun those were the days that's basically my slash writing experience <laughs> i guess we didn't even talk about how backdoor man wrapped up but were you able to get some of these other kind of interests you had in like delta blues and reggae and soul were you able to work those into backdoor man at all or was it a bit kind of out of the range uh no we worked some of that stuff in the magazine was titled after a Howlin' Wolf song. And when Howlin' Wolf died, we ran an obituary. It was probably the only obituary we, we ever ran. I think we ran one for Phil Oaks, too. But yeah, there was uh, one of our writers wanted to write about reggae music. And at first, I was, I, was, I was against it because, you know, I hadn't heard a lot of reggae music. It, you know, me and Julio down by the schoolyard or some, you know, Paul Simon stupid fake reggae. It was about all I heard. And then a friend of mine said, well, you know, you got to see that movie, the, the harder they come to understand where the real reggae is coming from. I go, okay. So we went out to see the movie and I thought, yeah, this is great. The songs are great. The guys can really sing. Mm -hmm. And I think um, one of our guys did a review of the movie or the soundtrack, one or the other, probably both. I think we did do, we might've done a Bob Marley piece or maybe some other things I can't remember. But yeah, we did we did some reggae. I can't remember if we did much jazz, probably not. But mostly it was just rock, yeah. So, oh, I, um, one of the guys, or a couple of them, I think, went to see a Funkadelic show, and I think you did a review of that. Why did you guys decide to end Backdoor Man? Well, we weren't very good businessmen. And we weren't making money at it. One of the deciding factors was... After we started our early magazines, if you were to see our early magazines, they're typed up. Dee Dee and I would type them up at the local community college. They had a, a electric typewriter. It's like a 25 cents for an hour. So we'd go in there with a couple of dollars and quarters and type everything up. And then we'd, you know, put it, lay it out. And some of it we'd have our, our uh, printers reduced so it would fit better. We used press type. I mean, you know, it's long before computers where you could just go, you know, two strokes and everything's in one font. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we didn't have that. It wasn't very easy. So yeah. after a couple of issues, we had, I guess we had uh, Patty Smith on the cover. And these women who were big Patty Smith fans saw it. And they, they contacted us and said, we work for a printing company we can make your magazine look much better. Hmm. And I said, that's great. 
how much does it cost? She goes, we'll do it for free after hours when no one's around. And I go, that's even better, <laughs> you know? So the last several issues were all done like that. And then their boss found out that they were sneaking in printing this magazine and put the kibosh to that. And mm. we didn't have the money to get it printed. We thought, well, we'd have to go back to the old way if we still wanted to do this. And we didn't want to do that. And we had never made any money. You know, I was never a, a kind of guy to hustle ads, you know, though I tried a little bit. And we did get a little bit of advertising, but it was very hard for me to do that. We ran, we did this weird thing once where one of the ads that we ran was for metal machine music. We were putting together the magazine and everything fit perfectly, except that there was one blank page. We didn't know what to do. What are we going to do? We're freaking out. We're freaking out. And so somebody, I think it was Didi, says, why don't we just take this ad from the back of Cream Magazine and put it on the back of our thing and it'll, it'll be, you know, we have an ad and that'll be it. Yeah. We thought that's genius. So we had this ad from Metal Machine Music in our magazine. And then we were, you know, the idea was to take that to other record companies, say, see, RCA has given us money, <laughs> you know. And it worked a little bit. But it was funny. So we uh, we advertised metal machine music for free. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh man, that just speaks to the resourcefulness and <laughs> weirdness of <laughs> that's that's what we had to do. You know, Jesus that or take stuff out. Nobody wanted to take anything out. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we would have had to take three pages of stuff out, you know, in order for it to work properly, you know, the way things were printed then. We were talking about some of the cool music that's coming out of Southern California that was not typical three-chord punk rock. And so I want to talk about your group, Fast Freddy and The Precisions. You guys, you started in the early 80s, Freddy, is that right? Well, we started, the gem of it was like around 79 when I was still living in Hollywood. Jeffrey and I would get drunk in my living room. And one day Jeffrey says, let's start a band. I go, huh? He goes, come on, you're going to be the singer. You're going to, you're, we're going to start a band. And I go, well, uh, and then he put together his band. He goes, and we went up to his house to rehearse. No, he was playing drums, actually. We went to his house. Sister's boyfriend had his drum set there. So Jeffrey played drums. Our first rehearsal was Jeffrey on drums. This fellow we knew from Cleveland who we called Mr. Rod, his name is Rodney Burns, uh, a really nice guy. And, we, and he OD'd some years after that, though. So Rod was there, and the guitarist was Joe Nolte from The Last. Oh, cool. Jeffrey calls Joe up. He goes, come on, we're starting a band with, with Freddie. Um, so we got those guys together, and we might have learned. I know we learned at least one song. We learned, uh, I think it was Treat Her Right, the Roy Head song. Huh. And we called up my friend Pleasant Gaiman, and I sang it to her over the phone. And, and that was as far as that, that group went. But then Jeffrey says, come on, we've got, we've got to get this together. Rod moved back to Cleveland, so we didn't see him again. Uh, and Joe was, of course, too busy with the last, so he couldn't be in it. So we got my friend Don Snowden, who's a bass player and writing for the LA Times. He was an LA Times writer. And he wanted to play bass because we wanted to do like jump blues. The thing we wanted to do most was jump blues, really. Because we were listening to these old, we found all these 78s in South Central LA, Wynonia Harris and Amos Milburn. And we're listening to them and we go, we got to do this stuff. This stuff's great. We got to put our own little band together. 
So we needed to find a sax player and a drummer. And Snowden wanted to join the band. So John was in the band since it was going to be a blues band. And since it was supposed to be a blues band, uh, he could still write for the LA Times and not worry about a conflict of interest, I guess. Because mm-hmm. he was a pop writer. You know, he was a pop music song, uh, writer for the LA Times. He'd review concerts. He'd ask me to go with him sometimes. I went with him to see uh, ACDC or something, you know. Oh, jealous, jealous. And so we went through a series of drummers. The first drummer we used, and he was the best one, but he was kind of, not, well, see the first one in my, I can't remember. We used Brendan Mullen, who is the guy who booked the mask. He was a drummer, but he's not a great drummer. He was a really nice guy and one of my favorite people in the world, but he's not a fabulous drummer. And another, we used this other guy, oh, K.K. Barrett, who was in the Screamers, who's another guy. But, you know, he was the perfect drummer for the Screamers, but he wasn't the perfect drummer for Deep Precision. And we put out a single not long ago, I guess last year or year before, of uh, a couple of tracks. And on, the, on it was one of our rehearsals of an original song that Jeffrey and I wrote called What a Friend I Have in Whiskey. And it's K.K. playing drums on it. With Jeffrey on guitar and Don Snowden on bass. And it was before we found a sax player. So there's like this empty space where the sax solo is supposed to go. And then Jeffrey lets out this just amazing guitar solo, just really wild. But so we rehearsed, we, you know, it, we had trouble finding a drummer for a while. And then we, this fellow who lived in my building was a drummer in this punk band. There's this, uh, this punk band lived in my building in Hollywood. He was the guitarist and the drummer lived there. And so I talked the drummer into coming out and rehearsing with us. And he did that. And he was a, he was a really good drummer. And he worked fairly well with us. We wanted him to join the band. But he didn't want to. He didn't want to do that stuff because uh, it wasn't punk rock, you know. And also, he was also a guitarist. And he wanted to play guitar also. But he was in this other band called The Vidiots. And he was a guitarist in the videos, this drummer. And the drummer's name was uh, Robert, I think. And one day his band was rehearsing and our band was rehearsing after his band. And he didn't want to rehearse with us. So he turned to the drummer of the videos and said, can you please do this rehearsal? They just need a drummer so they can go over these songs and you know, I'm not really into it. They're doing kind of these blues and jazzy things. And, you know, I'm, I, just, I just really don't want to do it. And so the, the drummer says, yeah, I don't, I don't mind. I'll do it, you know, figuring he can at least get some free beer out of us, you know, which, you know, we were all drinking, of course. And so the drummer comes over. His name is Chris Bailey. It turns out that he had been in a, his, his college, in, his, in college, he was in a show band. So he knew how to do play a shuffle, you know, and that's what we needed. We needed a drummer who could play a shuffle and Chris Bailey could do that. And so instantly it was, just, it was like that. The band just perked up and, and suddenly we had, you know, the makings of our band. I think we had picked up Steve Berlin, the sax player by then also. So he's wow. rehearsing with us. Chris Bailey's rehearsing with us. And that's when the band just started to come really come together. You know, sometimes you just need the drummer. You know, I'll tell you, like the Germs, the Germs became a good band when Don Bowles joined that band. Yeah. 
you know, after, before that, they were not a good band. I've seen them a bunch of times. For sure. But with Don Bowles in the band, Don Bowles was a, a good drummer for that band. Yeah. You know, I don't know if he would have been a good drummer for my band or not. But Chris Bailey. <laughs> His was, shuffle's probably not so good. But, no, he uh, probably, he's probably not <laughs> much of a shuffler. But Chris Bailey could shuffle. And that's what we needed. We needed a guy who could shuffle, a guy who could rock, a guy who could swing. And Chris Bailey could do all that stuff. And he was great. He was the nicest guy. He was really young at the time, open to anything. Mm -hmm. And that really helped. And, you know, once we added Steve Berlin and him, Jeffrey was always going to leave to start his own band. We knew that from the beginning. And it was taking us so long to get the band together because we couldn't find a drummer. And Jeffrey was getting antsy. He was writing a bunch of songs and stuff that wouldn't have been good for our band. So finally he says, you know, I can't do this anymore. I've got to get my own band going. I go, I understand. We asked this fellow we know named Harlan Hollander to join the band. And we knew him because he was from Chicago. We knew he knew blues riffs. And so we asked him to join the band. And when Jeffrey saw that I had asked Harlan to come join the band, he knew Harlan. He had seen Harlan's band a bunch of times and, and knew that he had he knew blues riffs and shit. He goes, oh, I don't have to show him anything. So basically, Jeffrey was just there for that rehearsal to show Harlan a couple of our riffs. And that was it. And we never saw Jeffrey again. <laughs> then he, you know, he started um, the Creeping Ritual, and which became the Gun Club later. Yeah. And Don Snowden, our bass player, actually played bass for some of the early gigs for the Creeping Ritual. I think he did all the Creeping Ritual gigs and maybe a couple of Gun Club gigs. Oh, wow. So once you guys had your lineup solidified, like, what did people make of you guys? Presumably you started getting shows. What was audience response like? Well, it helped that the early shows were opening for the Blasters. Oh, which cool. were basically a rockabilly and blues band, right? Mm -hmm. So that was really good. That was like the best thing. I knew Dave Alvin quite well. And Dave, uh, I had introduced him to Steve Berlin and we're at some gigs somewhere. And Steve's talking to Dave about the band and we'd been rehearsing and rehearsing and i just wanted to keep rehearsing because i didn't feel i was that good of a singer and i wanted to make sure i knew what i was doing when i got up there and steve one day dave alvin turns to steve berlin sets some show and says is freddie's band ready and steve says yeah he goes okay i'm booking a gig so our first two gigs were booked by dave alvin um you know playing the opening for the blasters at club 88 and that really helped a lot because you know people who liked the blasters liked us mm -hmm. we weren't nearly as good as the blasters you know who was but um but it was we were mining similar territory to a certain extent then yeah. of course everybody got to see steve berlin and the next thing you know steve berlin's playing in the blasters yeah yeah that's right so yeah that 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 might that bill definitely makes sense were you guys also on any kind of weird incongruous bills like oh yeah we're on bands and things there we're on a bunch of them and it was always kind of fun because we would do weird shit we had this song called um goodbye my love it's on our first record and it's kind of a long drawn out ballad where steve berlin gets to play like albert eiler a little bit mm. and and so, you know, whenever we found ourselves in this weird thing, we would bring that out and, and do it. Or we, there are a couple of things we did that were kind of weird. Or sometimes we just do our songs really fast. <laughs> you, know? you guys have 
a really neat sound, I think. It's it's hard to pigeonhole. It's but did like, you hear the record? Yeah, I still have to buy the CD that came out. It's actually that's another question too. So last year, was it last year or 2019 that uh this record label called Manifesto Records released a double CD of all yeah, this vintage in fact so, it came out and we did a reunion show like maybe three weeks before the lockdown. That was kind of fun. That was really a lot of fun doing that. It's probably it's been years since you've played with these guys, right? Oh yeah. Some of them I hadn't seen. You know, I see Chris Bailey and I became really good friends. So I see him every time I go to LA. He was like the one guy from from the very first show to the very last. He was the only guy on all the shows. Um, you know, Steve Berlin, of course, became Steve Berlin and had to do other things, and I understand that. And I'm very happy for him how it worked out for him. Mm -hmm. um, and Jay Work, who became our second saxophone player, he came in, you know, when we found him, he would play with us. And then if Steve was in town, he would play with us. We'd have two sax players. And that was always fun. And sometimes, it would, Marty, I don't know if you know the, the Motels. Are you familiar with the band, the Motels? The name is familiar, but I don't really know. They had some big pop hits in the 80s. But their keyboard player is also a great sax player. Hmm. And he, whenever he was in town, he would come and play with us. And sometimes we'd have like three or four sax players, these guys who wanted to jam with us because, you know, they got to make this music that they can't do with their regular bands, mostly, you know. Yeah. So it was kind of fun. Um, especially, you know, there'd be like four or five sax players when we played Club Lingerie. That was pretty much our home base, I guess. We didn't play there a lot, but when we played there, we always did well. And it was always fun. Uh, mostly because I was a DJ there. I worked there as a DJ. And I knew everybody. So it was, that made it fun. You're on the East Coast now. Uh, yeah. You said you're in upstate New York and you're working at the Archive of Contemporary Music. Can you that tell us what they do and what you do there? Oh, that's a good question. Good question. Basically, the archive at this moment, this the Archive of Contemporary Music is a giant record collection that I help maintain. It's quite possibly about a million records. Mm. Um, we have, uh, God, I don't know, tons of 45s, tons of albums. We have videos. We have books about music. We have posters. We have all kinds of memorabilia, like record boxes and uh, you know T-shirts, band T-shirts, and what have you. Are these all donated or purchased or kind of combination? About ninety-five to ninety-eight percent is all donated. Yeah. Wow. It's a it's a not for profit. Uh, there have been times when we had money and we were able to go out and buy some things, but not very often. We have a Robert Johnson seventy-eight that was purchased for us by by Keith Richards actually. No way. He gives us money. Like there's all these people who promise to give us money every year, and of all of them. Keith Richards is the only one who still does it. Wow. He gives us like ten or twenty thousand dollars a year to help us maintain the collection. And we've named our blues collection after him, the Keith Richards Blues Collection. And so we have that all separate from the rest of the stuff. So if you were to come to it, we're up we we just moved upstate to Stottsburg, New York. 
And if you were to come visit us in our offices now, you'd be able to see the blues collection that's out where and accessible, but all the other records are still in boxes waiting for a building to be built. Uh, and that's supposed to happen. We're getting fundraising. Everything's getting everything's slowly getting into place. These people are just now starting to get the funds together to or to, to start fundraising, really. And we're going to have this great big building. And with any luck, everything will be accessible, you know, really soon, hopefully before I retire. You know, I really want to see everything in place before I, I leave there. But that's what we do. We just got this incredible collection from this guy in uh, North Carolina. He owned uh, car dealerships in uh, Raleigh-Durham area. He was a big record collector, had all his money, and went out and bought some of the most expensive records you'll ever see. Some of which are, are you'll go, wow, I wish I had that. And others, you would think, well, what's expensive, but so what, <laughs> you know, but I don't know, you know, I don't know what his motive was. It's, it's you know, because he had these crazy German psych albums from the early 70s. He has like a bunch of Mariah Carey records. And he has just about, he has every Bob Dylan record you could name, including the recent box sets uh, on the LP, not the, not the CDs. He didn't have very many CDs. But you know, when records came out in Europe on LP only, and they didn't come out in America, he had the European issue of the LP. He, so he has a lot of weird records. So, you know, the first Pink Floyd album, he has a sealed copy of the first 13th Floor Elevators album. And a lot of the records were sealed and a lot of them were in incredibly great shape. Uh, and there was probably about 10,000 albums and probably 30,000 45s, probably something like that. And there was it just there just seemed to be no rhyme or reason to his collection because he would have um, things that you think, man, I wish I had that. And things you think, man, why was that even recorded? <laughs> you know what I mean? With somebody like us keeping, you know, the LPs, you know, nobody's playing them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're, most of them are in good shape, but because they're donated, some of them are not in good shape. Yeah. But, you know, every once in a while, we'll have a record that scratched up and then somebody gives us one in some better shape and we'll swap it out. Yeah. You know? So we're, we're it's 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 this organic thing I th I call it organic because it's it's changing it's always changing it gets bigger it gets smaller it gets bigger mostly it gets bigger <laughs> you know more than anything it gets bigger it's a great thing I think it's really important and I'm really happy to be part of it. No, that's amazing. I'm a librarian, so I, I, yeah. I get the importance of of documenting and archiving these things. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing. I'm jealous you get to work there. Yeah, it's great. Um, people always talk about, well, are you digitizing this stuff? And you know something? By the time we get like a tenth of it digitized, there's going to be another format. Yeah. You know, and then we're going to have to do it again. And then we're going to have bother. to do it again. Yeah. So the best thing to do is to do nothing. And then if somebody needs a copy for whatever purpose, I mean, we can't make, if someone were to come off the street and say, hey, man, I, want, yeah, I used to listen to this song you know, 40 years ago, can you make a copy for me? We can't do that. But say if somebody was making a movie and they wanted a, a song, you know, we can make a, a movie for professional purposes because mm -hmm. ostensibly 
the person who owns the copyright of that song will get paid down the line. You yeah. know what I mean? So we yeah. can do that. But, you know, if you said, hey, man, make a copy of such and such for me, I can't do that. Sorry. You know. But yeah, you know, by the time everything's digitized, there's going to be like eight of the formats. We're going to have to keep buying new machines. Thank you so much to Fred for taking the time to chat. Please check out the Fast Freddy and the Precision's double CD set on Manifesto Records and start petitioning the good people at Hozak Records and Books about doing a Backdoor Man anthology. It's really about time. As always, thank you for checking out Rock Rit. If you're a regular listener who enjoys what we do here, please consider leaving a review or a rating whenever wherever you download podcasts. It will help us reach a bunch more ears. Take good care until next time.